Hello, my name is Felicity Ward and I'm on Comedy Bloggity with Sarah Shulman. And you can find me on Twitter. Well, all of my handles are the same. My Twitter handle is at Felicity Ward. My Facebook page is Felicity Ward. On Instagram, I'm Felicity Ward. I have a WordPress, which is felicityward.wordpress.com. Um, that is a blog. Uh, I think that's about it. Oh, and I have a website, which is felicityward.com. It's very confusing. So, Felicity, how did you get into comedy? Oh, this old question. It's one of those questions where... I, and every time someone asks me this, I get self-conscious because I've done a couple of podcasts and I've told this story so many times that I'm afraid that people are going to go, she needs a new story. Um, I got into comedy, uh, sketch or stand-up? Or the whole thing. The whole thing. All right. Take a deep breath. Um, started out as an actor, wanted to be an actor my whole life. And then, uh, and couldn't get anywhere with it. Like I'm, I'm from a small town and I moved to Sydney when I was about um, 20, I think. And, uh, and then couldn't get an agent, couldn't get any work that was paid. And my friend who I, whom I'd done a play with earlier that year asked me if I wanted to audition for the Sydney University uh, Arts Review. And he was a part of Sydney Uni and he was directing it. And I didn't go to uni. And I said, oh, don't go to uni. He said, oh, don't worry about it. And so I auditioned and then I got in. And the cast was really big, like it was 25 people or something like that. So I want to make it very clear it wasn't an exclusive job. And then um, and then there was something called The Third Degree that, that had happened the year before, which was like a best of uni review show that had gone to the Melbourne Comedy Festival. And and so it was happening again the next year. And I anyone that had been in the Sydney University Review could audition. So I auditioned and I'd written a couple of the sketches that were um, that were in that show and uh, and then I got into that and that was a little smaller. That was like six people in the cast and two of them were women and one of them was me. And, um, and I remember that whole month at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, we, we had apartments that were like hired for us by the producer but there was a mistake. So there was two single beds and a double bed. So me and the other girl in the cast, Heather, had to share a bed for a month. I didn't even know who this person was, but we didn't have any money. So I'm like, well, let's suppose we're sharing a bed together. So Heather, if you're listening, hello, I remember the spooning. And um, that only happened one night. It was an accident. Um, <laughs> we drank a lot. Um, so that happened. And then and during that festival, they had um, – some t- the year before they had some TV people come to the show, and uh, and they said, oh, we we don't think you're ready, but we we like sort of what you do. And so they came back the next year and they said to the producer, um, a couple of weeks after the comedy festival, and this never happens. I will put this point this out that this never ever happens. It definitely never happens in Australia now. Um, a couple of weeks later. People from one of the commercial networks in Australia said, we would like to give you a writing workshop. A writing workshop, sorry, my accent. Writing workshop. So basically what he said, they said to that producer of our show, said you, out of the two shows, you, you know, you choose you, who you want to come in and write. And, um, and so we just for two months wrote comedy and that's all we did five days a week. And I'd never done that before. I'd never had a comma in my paycheck before. And like, well, it wasn't like hundreds of thousands of dollars or anything, but it was just, it was um, actually, I think we got paid in fortnight. So that was, that's why there was a comma in it. But, um, 
but that just doesn't ever happen. And I didn't, we, we were all like, I was a waitress and, and Heath was in concrete, he was a concreter and Jordan was working at his dad's dry cleaning business and we we're all like just kids. And um, I was the eldest and I was 24. And um, so for, for two months, we just sort of wrote. And at the end of that, we had this like meeting day and the people from the network came in and we didn't get a brief or anything. It was just like, write what you think is funny for two months. It wasn't even, at the end of it, we need a TV show idea and we need a plot lines and narrative. It was just, yeah, what do you think's funny? So we decided that if we were going to make a show, it would be a sketch show and um, that it would be called this particular name. And um, I don't want to say the name just in case you look the sketches up. <laughs> some of them are good. Some of them are terrible, as is the nature of sketch comedy. And um and so at the, the this last day of the writing festival uh, writing workshop, we all sat in a room and just sort of pitched our ideas and said, "I have a character and it's called this, and I would do it like this." And then we you know act out some of the scenes. And I nearly blew it the second we sat down, because all of the cast were on one side of the room, and then the TV producers and our producers were on the other side of the room, and there was like maybe a three or four meter gap between us, and. <laughs> I don't know if I was nervous or I just thought I was like the cheeky upstart and they'd really enjoy this. And I said, oh, you see this area between us? This is called the generation gap. And there was a moment where nobody laughed. I went, oh, I've, I've ruined it. I've absolutely ruined it. And I thought that was it. And then there was like two seconds and then everyone laughed. And I could see the producer of the show just going, what are you doing? You're going to ruin this. Anyway. A couple, maybe a month later, we uh, we got told that we got a pilot episode, which is I'm sure most of you know if you are comedy nerds. Hello, that's the first episode of it, you know, a TV series. If you're going to get one, so we had uh, two weeks to make it, and we uh, and we made it, and we handed it in on the Friday, and on the Monday we got a call from the network saying you have six episodes of a new TV series, and then the next day they said actually make it thirteen, and so that. So after being an actor from the time I was seven to the time I was 24 uh, and never being paid, within 12 months of doing comedy, I had a job straight away, like a TV show with my friends. And it was just ridiculous. It was so ridiculous. And, uh, and also the thing that I didn't say is that when I, when I did sketch for the first time, because I, you know, I'd studied Stanislavski methods and, you know, when I was acting and Boal and all of these different kind of theatres and theatre of cruelty and absurdity. And, and then when I got to comedy and they said, well, basically you just have to be as funny as you can. I'm like, so there's no like super objective or I don't have to, it's, I don't have to go through and like give an action. And they're like, just be funny. I'm like, all right. So I don't know if it was, it was easier or something. I don't know. But um, I don't think that comedy is easy. So we did that and we did that for one series and then somehow with like pl not plummeting ratings, cult ratings we'll say, um, uh, we got another series and that, that rated better um, and, then, and then at the end of it, I don't think that we would have done a third series anyway. They didn't ask us to do a third series. We didn't really know what we could do with that format to, to keep enjoying it and, and make it better um so we stopped and at the end of that I was kind of at a loss because before I started I was a failed actor and then I did two series of tv I still could not get an agent couldn't get an agent could with two tv series of like writing and performing and no one was interested I'm like all right okay 
And so one of the guys, um, whose name is Heath Franklin, he uh, he went on tour and the producer of the stage show and then of the TV show was producing this. And he said, do you want to be like a stage manager, production manager? I'm like, yeah, I've never done it before, so all right. So we did that for two years. And so I wasn't like, I wasn't anything. And this is uh, for anyone that has seen last year's show which was called the hedgehog dilemma that's sort of when this took place these like two years of a lot of bad things happened where I left my marriage and uh or my fiance and uh stopped drinking and moved back in with my mum so all of this happened while I was a stage manager so I sort of had this dwindling sense of self uh because I wasn't performing and I didn't know how I was going to get back on stage and I really missed it because I'm an attention seeker, I suppose. I suppose. I'm a desperate, desperate person. Um, so while I was – oh, look, this this bit of the – this is really convoluted. How convoluted do you want me to get? Pretty convoluted. Okay. So in 2007, I came to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and – I was basically coming on a holiday. What had happened is the the sketch show, um, some people on an American website called collegehumor.com, they'd seen one of our sketches and it had been positively received. And then we got an email or Chris, the producer, got an email saying, hey, we're this American company and we so, you know, we're an agency and we want you guys to come to America. We're like, all right, well, this is rubbish. And then it wasn't rubbish, it was real. And then a couple of us went over to LA and had like meetings with like MTV and the Comedy Channel and HBO and we're like, what is going on? And nothing eventuated. I think we sort of got down the track a bit with MTV. They were like, they took to us pretty well. Um, But after that, I went on on holidays. And so at this point, I'd been a a stage manager for, I don't know, six months or something uh, or a year. And... uh, I went to see my friend who was doing the tour, who I was the stage manager of. Uh, I went to visit him and my friends in Edinburgh and I'd never been to the festival before. And I met someone and then uh, when he was in Australia, he um, he was very good friends with uh, a guy called Adam Hills, who you might know. So we went to see him um, live and then after the show, uh, we went and had a drink with Adam and I had maybe met Adam once before and we we're all sitting around and he said, do you want a, a drink? We we're in this bar and I said, oh, I don't drink. And we'd been sitting around just bantering before that. And he said, if you can be half this funny, I will get you on my TV show. So he has this show in Australia. I had this show called Spicks and Specs, which is a long running music show similar to Nevermind the Buzzcocks. And, um, and I was like, well, that's a nice thing to say, but as if that's ever going to happen. And, you know, Adam is the nicest guy in the world and, you know, way to live up to your um, reputation. So two weeks later, I get a phone call from the talent producer of Spicks and Specs going, hi, this is uh, Sancia and uh, I work in Spicks and Specs. Um, and I, I don't know, I, uh, Adam Hills has uh, spoke to me about you. I'm like, what is going on? And... Then she said, no, I don't know if you'd be interested on coming on our show. I'm like, what are you talking about? And so I went on the show and I was like, I don't, I didn't even know how they were going to introduce me. It's like, well, oh, hey, here's Adam's friend's girlfriend. But it was, um, it was, uh, they, 
said comedic actress or something. I don't know. But I went on there and had a really good time. And that was probably the first time that I realised that I could um, maybe just be funny by myself and not have to be a character because I was never, ever going to do stand-up ever, ever, ever not interested. And um, it was kind of like how they described it before they went on the show. They said, look, when you get up there, it's just like, a conversation with your friends at a pub and that's how you should you should feel comfortable and relaxed and talk with everyone and ask questions and and I had a really good time and so they got me on a bunch more and um <laughs> and then an agent was interested in me <laughs> and um and then his uh now wife um the hills have been very good to me um his lovely wife Ali McGregor has a variety show which will be on at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival as well and I think she had seen me on Spicks and Specs and she said uh, oh I should clear this up if you've never heard of Spicks and Specs that's actually a song from the BJ's it's just not a really racist song um a, a racist name um I think I just said BJ's instead of BG's different very different things both available in Australia so uh, Ali McGregor has this variety show and she said, hey, if you want to do something during Mel- Melbourne Comedy Festival in my show, you can um, you can come on my show. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I'd be into that. And I sort of, you know, sort of brushed it off. And then um, during the festival at the beginning, she goes, so do you still want to do the – I'm like, yeah, yeah, I still want to do it. And then halfway during the festival, she said, hey, Felicity, we've only got one more spot left and it's on the last night of the festival do you want to do it? Because if you don't, I'll have to get someone else in. And that was like the, you know, the fork in the road moment in the movie where you're like, if I don't take this, maybe I'll never be on stage again. And so I said yes, not knowing what I wanted to do. And she said, oh, don't, you know, don't worry. It doesn't have to be comedy or anything because it's a variety night and or it doesn't have to be stand-up. And uh, I was like, good, because who said anything about stand-up comedy? What are you talking about? Now... This is the longest answer of all time. If you're still li- listening, you're very brave um, or you hate your job. So it was three days before the gig and I had this idea where uh, I, my friend who was also on the sketch show had these toy tanks that shot each other and we electrocuted each other and like when you shot the other person, it had like infrared bullets. It was really painful and incredibly funny. And, and so I had this idea where I was like, maybe I could buy some of those and then I would ask trivia questions. Uh, I could get someone out of the audience and then if they got the, the answer wrong, I would shoot them and then they would get an electric shock. Or if they got it right, they would shoot me and I'd get an electric shock. And I thought that would be a funny, dumb thing to watch. I didn't think about the paperwork or the legalities of it. So I ordered these online, I think, on the Thursday. They arrived on the Friday afternoon. The gig was on Sunday. So the Friday afternoon, the postman buzzes and I was still a production manager at this stage. So I'm on the phone like, I don't know, booking accommodation for somewhere in Queensland for this gig. And... um. And I buzzed the postman in and I said, come up to the third floor. And then I was on the phone and just got distracted and forgot all about it. Then half an hour later, I was off the phone. I was like, what What happened to those tanks? Like, well, that's weird. I opened the door. They weren't there. I thought I'd have to sign for them or something. Went down to the, like, the lobby area. They weren't there. And so they just vanished. And I don't know if the postman stole them or I don't know if they just – or if another, like, person from the, the apartment stole them. The tanks weren't there. They weren't there and I wasn't going to get them because now it was Friday and I went to like a couple of games shops and nobody had anything like that. 
And then I went into full panic mode because I had two days to figure out what I was going to do in this spot. And it was 12 minutes, which is a really long time for someone that has never done stand-up comedy before. So I thought, I I have to do stand-up comedy. Now, from the um, sketch days, I had fortunately kept diaries or notebooks with me. So I had a couple of little moleskins and I just trawled them looking through going oh my god what can I say for 12 minutes and why will anyone care about this and there was this song that I wrote for my sister's 21st birthday so that would have been 2008 like 10 years before right um I'd written her this birthday song and the first verse of it was um was pretty funny and then I had like a little anyway I thought, well, maybe I can use some of that song. So I had, and I had, I borrowed a friend's guitar. It was actually Ben from Pappy's was in Australia at the time. So I borrowed his guitar, I think. And, um, and then, so I had that. And then I read something about how Prince um, was actually a Jehovah's Witness and would occasionally go, was caught door knocking in um, Wisconsin, I think. So I wrote this like little sketch of the woman that answers the door and inviting Prince in. And then I wrote a whole bunch of stuff just about where I'm from and my mum and my dad. And, you know, we had chickens and we didn't have a farm and it was unusual people. And so I just thought, well, that's going to have to do. And it was like, you know how you are at the end of a festival and I'm on the production side of things. So no one gives a crap about you when you're in production no one no one wants to hang out with you. No one buys you drinks. No one wants to go, hey, I've got all these friends you should meet. No one treats you well. So I was at the end of, I was stage manager and production manager for two shows and I was in the daytime working for the production company as well and we were distributing merchandise around Australia. So we were like packing during the day as well as organising this 90-date Australian tour that was happening in front of us. So I was run ragged and exhausted and we're about 10 minutes before I was going on and I was fetal. I was like, this is the worst idea I've ever had this is not going to be funny. I'm an idiot. Why would I ever want to do this? And Adam was on after me and he was like, you know, in the green room and he's like, oh, you'll be fine, mate. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll be fine, mate. And then I literally had the thought, well, I'm probably going to kill myself after this, so I may as well have fun. And I did genuinely believe that I would just walk into the river after I thought it was just me and the Yarra and we were going to have some, you know, stones in pockets. So I may as well have fun. And then I went out there and uh, it was dark times. And and it was maybe a minute in, I went, ah, oh, this is it. This is it. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And um, I went back to my mum's house the next day, which is an interstate. And someone earlier in the year had said, oh, would you be interested in doing this radio thing? And I'm like, yeah. They're like, but it's in Melbourne. I was like, oh, okay, I don't live in Melbourne. Three days after the festival, something like that, I went, I'm, I'm moving to Melbourne. That's it. I'm moving to Melbourne. And then three days after that, I got a call saying, hey, that radio job is available if you want it, uh, but you have to move to Melbourne. I'm like, I'm moving to Melbourne, so no worries. And then I did this radio show and did gigs. And then four months after that gig, I put on the first show, my first show at the Melbourne Fringe Festival. And that was my foray into comedy. And it did all right. So how do you feel that your style has changed in stand-up since you first started gigging? I think I'm less weird than I was when I first started. 
I really, at the beginning, I really liked being a bit of a weirdo and, um, and I still like being a bit of a weirdo, but I also prefer laughing. <laughs> I prefer people laughing than staring at me or going, is she okay? Which, which was, because what happens is I sat, a lot of when I first started, I would be, I would tell stories to my friends and they would be laughing a lot and they'd say, you should say that on stage. And I go, oh, Okay. But often when I would do that, because I've had my whole life, I've been me my whole life, so none of the stories are really that surprising to me and I find them funny. Sometimes I would say them on stage and they would just be too dark for people. And they go, and you could hear them go, oh. You're like, no, I'm fine. Oh, oh, God, I don't want you to pity me. That's the worst. That's the opposite of laughing. So I suppose my style has changed in that I have um, – I have punchlines now too. <laughs> when I first started, I would like write jokes and I could write like mid- the beginnings of jokes and the middle parts of jokes and then the ends were like, well, that's the end of that. <laughs> or or the punchlines wouldn't be very strong and I told really long stories when I first started and uh, and they were okay but it like people lose interest pretty quickly if you're not an incredible storyteller and I was probably an engaging storyteller but not that funny a storyteller I don't know I don't know um you be the judge of that just don't tell me about it I'm a lot and if you see me now you'll be surprised that I'm saying this I'm a lot calmer on stage than I used to be yeah I used to be like I used to be a bit mental on stage and uh, yeah, I kind of got off on it. I think that that's when I used to drink, I liked feeling crazy and I liked drinking on the crazy because I didn't, I didn't care if people were watching me or not. And maybe when I first started stand up, it was a bit defiant on stage. I'm like, I don't care if you like me or not. And now I'm, you know, a whore for it. So um, yeah, I would say that I am calmer on stage and more in control than I used to be. <laughs> You're shaking your head going, you looked mental during the show last year. <laughs> I know that I'm, I don't mean energetic. I've always been energetic, but I'm not as erratic. You're still not convinced. All right, that's fine. I mean, hopefully, hopefully I'm better at writing my jokes. I, I hope, I think that I am. I think I get, my jokes are a lot shorter now. Um, yeah, they used to, sometimes they used to ramble, but I, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm more disappointed in myself now than I was five years ago and I don't know if that's because my standards have improved or that my quality has diminished. I don't know which one it is. I hope it's that my standards have improved because sometimes I'll be staring at, you know, my jokes just going, this isn't good enough. You're the worst. How can you still be like this after five years? But I, my, I think that that is most comedians' experience too, the, the comedians that I've spoken to. So I suppose that's how my stand-up has changed as far as the shows go all of them have been different so the first show that I did was like a variety show and it was storytelling there was a couple of songs there was a game and uh and then there was some stand-up and it was pretty personal the next show very personal but they were all essays that I sort of read out and I did it in you know a cravat and a velvet jacket and I had a dog and you know it was over music and much more subdued than the third show, half of which is coming to Edinburgh this year and then half of it is new. Um, uh, that was just straight stand-up and then the show last year was very narrative and then I did a show in 2011 at Melbourne Fringe Festival called the uh, Felicity Ward's week-long ill-timed Christmas special, which was like a literally a variety show that was Christmas-themed um, and that was really interactive and lots of games and so I... I, I I suppose the thing that's lacking is consistency. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think that 
it it changes all the time. I don't really have a style where um, I don't really have a formula for shows, I suppose. I just go, what do I feel like doing or what is coming out of my brain? And then that's what I'm stuck with. And the show that you performed last year, The Hedgehog Dilemma, was deeply personal and you performed 114 shows. So did you find it hard talking about such personal experiences on stage and also talking about it for such a long tour? I, I, it, it happened six years after, like I was talking about it six years after the fact. So it is that, you know, time, tragedy plus time equals comedy. Um, initially it was... I think my biggest concern was not being personal because all of my stuff is really personal. And this year's show, I talk about, you know, my anxiety disorder and how my family responded to that and my perfectionism. And um, uh, it's, but it's done in a, a much more observational way. Um, I wasn't worried about that. What I was worried about was doing a show that was more sentimental than it was funny. That's what I was the most concerned with out of everything and that's what made me the most anxious before the show and I had a, a script editor because I um, structure isn't my strong point and I didn't want to sell this story short because I knew this was the big story that I had and uh, and I was calling him the night before I'm like mate I just I just haven't put enough jokes in this show it's not funny enough it's just going to depress people and he said we'll do the trial and we'll look at it afterwards and if it hasn't got enough jokes we'll just put more jokes in it I went all right fine and then it was good fine and and I I still don't think that it was more sentimental than it was funny I think there was maybe one review that said that and they said oh you know it's a bit like therapy I'm like well it is to an extent and uh fortunately or unfortunately um no absolutely unfortunately while I was doing it last year in Australia, the show um, is, as I said, is about sort of leaving my fiance and then sort of <clears throat> meeting someone else and thinking that they w- were going to be the next fiance, maybe I don't know. And so it was, a, it's kind of like it had elements of breakup in it. Then I experienced my own breakup in real life while I was uh, while that was happening in Australia, and that was horrific. So then I had to come over to Edinburgh. And every night sort of do this show, this deeply, deeply personal show while I was trying not for my real life to spill in or to take over and just to sort of get through the show. And um, and so that, that made it very difficult. And well, not difficult. If anything, it sort of gave me a touchstone where I go, because sometimes you can get sick of your own show. Um, and especially with something that's so heavily scripted like Hedgehog was, like I really, I wrote nearly every line word for word. Um, because I just didn't have time to impro or talk to the audience or anything like that because there's too much to get through. So sometimes with those shows, similar to a play, you can, I suppose, grow weary of the lines or lose what you the intention behind why you originally wrote it. And so to have this sort of horrible experience that was happening at the same time meant that it was still real for me while I was saying it. Um, but then when this year I've sort of done it a couple of extra times and it's kind of difficult having to go back there when you've moved on from those feelings and, and, you know, done you or done your best to move on from those feelings. But you just, you just pull it out. You know, I'm still proud of the show. So it was never, it was never a chore to do the show in that I never went, ugh, this thing again. But it is difficult to go back to a mindset that you have moved on from a long time ago. And during the show, you were very in tune with the audience and the way that the audience were interacting with the show and how they were sitting and how they were reacting to what you were saying. So 
it's being vocal and focusing on the responsibility of an audience member when watching a comedy show something that you've always employed when you've performed yeah I think it's sort of a clowning technique that sort of I think I've heard Phil Berger's talking about it um Dr Brown and he was talking about it and I'd, I'd always sort of done it instinctively but he talks about the offer of a clown sort of you know making the comedy offer and if they don't laugh or if they don't do anything that you have a response to that because it's live because you're not a, a robot and I like that idea I don't um I hope that I don't over comment on it and I know that I used to a lot when I was first starting out like if someone didn't like that like it or if the audience didn't like it I'd go oh not into that one are you guys oh okay well uh you're not gonna like this you know I'd get nervous and self-conscious about it whereas I feel now it's a part of I always have to separate what uh, what is making this a live show as opposed to a pre-recorded show and so if for some reason, and, I, and this is definitely a positive, um, often people feel compelled to yell things out and not in a heckling way but in a, a supportive way or in a they, they absolutely have to say what they're, what they're about to say. They can't keep it to themselves and I really love that and I think what that also adds is the rest of the audience know that this cannot be set up and that for what, this one night this has happened and they were watching it and we were in it together and I do feel like it's, you know, it's a mutual contract where the more they give, the more I give and vice versa. Um, so I'm definitely aware of what an audience is doing while I'm performing. Uh, the nights that I'm not feeling very good about myself or if I'm really tired or if I've had a horrible day, I will tend to interact with them less just because I can't deal with it if I happen to have, you know, a person that's mean or always intentionally belligerent or whatever it is. Usually I can deal with that stuff fine, but I, I, I suppose I pull back on that. Um, and it also might be a new spring for inspiration during the show. If, as I said, if, you know, if you're 20 shows into a 27 run, um, 27 show run like Edinburgh is, and someone does something a little bit unusual, you can stop and you can have a conversation with them and the audience go, oh, that just happened. So, um, yeah, I, I suppose that I'm – I stay sensitive to what an audience is doing and your show this year that you're taking to the edinburgh festival is irregardless so what can audiences expect from your show this show is just stand up more or less it's just straight stand up uh with these musical elements I, I don't know why there's always been a song in my show i've always put a song and um so there's a song an original song at the end and uh with a loop pedal which is heaps of fun and then in the middle I've got this bit with auto tune and then at the beginning there's sort of there's sort of a musical beginning middle and end and then in between those it's all just stand up and uh it's personal but this feel this this show is uh it's like a cousin once removed from personal so it's not the emotional narrative that it was it's not about a particular chronological time in my life um uh I think there's I think it's probably my funniest show I think I don't know you hope that it's your funniest show I think this has the most jokes that any of my shows have ever had um I suppose that's the aim to every year for it to be funnier and to have more jokes so in that regard I, I hope that I've succeeded and how did you find that the British comedy scene compared to the Australian comedy scene when you started gigging over here? I mean, the difference is, the, the main difference is just the sheer volume of it. Like in Australia or in Melbourne, I can gig for two weeks and do all of the gigs, right? Now, the 
comedy audience in Melbourne are incredibly loyal. So they come to all the gigs. So after two weeks when you've done all the gigs, even if you the next two weeks did all those gigs again, you'd have to have new material because you can't do the same material over and over again. You, it, it's, it's difficult to find places to polish it um, in the way that's available in London, you know. Like I can have a new bit of material and I can do 10 gigs in that week and get it really polished by the end. We just don't have the same um, volume in, in Melbourne or in Australia, so that's not available. There's something called Roadshow, um, the Melbourne Comedy Festival run, and basically it's a tour. They have two simultaneous tours that go all over Australia and the comics do between 15 and 20 minutes. There's four comics and an MC. And it's a great – it's one of the only times where you go, right, I'm going to get a polished 20 minutes and I'm just going to hone that, if that's what you choose to do. You can change it every night if you want, do whatever you like. But for me, the first time I did that for a while, like I went to um, Western Australia and you spend a month there and you have 18 shows or 19 shows over the month and uh, or maybe more, I don't know. Um, but every night it was like, oh, so now I've got a rock-solid 20 minutes watertight that I feel proud that I could take to most places. But um, in London I can I can do that every night if I want. And I, I suppose that's the difference. And if you have a bad gig, you're like, well, that's cool. There's one tomorrow. It doesn't have – maybe doesn't carry the same weight of disappointment if you don't have a good gig. Um, but it, like with any new place, it's also learning the nuances of what audiences find funny. And in the, the same in London as, as in Melbourne, there's variations of how comedy savvy an audience is or what they actually like. You know, some audiences – they, they vary in the same ways is what I'm saying. And in terms of audiences around the world, you've performed in Australia and the UK, but also Hollywood and Singapore. So how did you find that different audiences compared and reacted to your comedy? I think I had the most trouble in America. First, I went there uh, September last year. And when I'm on stage, I speak very quickly. And uh, I speak, I think, the way that I used to speak when I was growing up. As I said, I'm from a small town and so... I I don't know what happened as soon as I started doing stand-up, my accent sort of reverted, went back to – because I was a waitress in Sydney for a while and I got sick of people going, oh, you're not from here, are you? So I started speaking like a Sydney person and just, you know, opening my mouth when I spoke and, you know, as opposed to my normal accent, which is a lot more nasal and, you know, more banjo-y. So when I went to um, America, I, there was only one club that I did that was like a commercial club and then the other gigs were alternative gigs. The alternative gigs went fine, or like indie gigs. And this this gig that I did at this club was just bad. I dried like I haven't dried in years, like literally wanted a glass of water in, a, in the middle of a 10-minute set. And they were like looking at me. They were a bit drunk. They were confused. I picked really like material that was too Australian centric it was just horrible and I hated it and I never wanted to do stand-up in America ever again I was like that's it I'm calling it I can only do alternative gigs in America like the whole of I wrote off the whole America because of one one gig so I went back there in um February March I think it was and um one of my first gigs was a club club again I'm like oh no this is gonna be bad and so I just picked some other material and I spoke to another comic and he said just just slow down a bit you'll be fine and then it was great I went okay so it was just a bad experience but I haven't been I haven't been rattled like that for a really long time um as far as London is concerned it's gone pretty well since I've but I've sort of been coming back forth and back and forth here for 
a couple of years. So they um they're good, and the Edinburgh audiences are like anywhere. Some of the some audiences are really into it, and other audiences, as I've said many times before, sometimes you're just lucky enough to get a whole room full of people that hate you at the one time. And do you have a favourite type of venue that you prefer performing in? That's changed over the years. Like the venue that I have in Edinburgh, I love um, because it's a flat stage and the audience is tiered. And I like the idea of being lower than them because uh, then there's no superiority. Uh, but then having said that, I've been in places that have a, a high stage and sometimes being in the place of power, uh, if you feel confident with it, is it makes it even better. So I, I don't know. Um the only thing that I'm interested in in a venue is if it's got a toilet backstage and this one's got a toilet backstage, <laughs> which is rare in Edinburgh, and it's got a separate entrance to the backstage from the actual theatre so you can go in while the other act is on before you. Very rare, very rare. I want the dairy room for the rest of my life. And do you have a favourite type of audience that you prefer performing to? I think that, yeah, I, I like when audiences are sort of mostly mid-20s to mid-40s or even mid-50s and then I like a good sprinkling of between like 15 to 25-year-olds and then a really good sprink. Like I, Because the, the show that I was talking about before, Spicks and Specs, I did that quite a few times over the years in Australia and, uh, and the audiences are like 60 and 70 and 50, 60 and 70 for some reason. So I always in Australia will have at least two 70-year-olds in my show and I have a filthy mouth and uh, on Spicks and Specs I don't have a filthy mouth. So there's a moment where they're a little bit worried and then they go, oh, actually, I've sworn my whole life. Who am I kidding? So I like having a sprinkling of extremes and then a majority of like, you know, like 24 to 54, I suppose. Something like that, I suppose. And as you were saying earlier that people often feel almost compelled to shout something out in your show. So do you have any advice about dealing with hecklers, but also just in terms of when people start to vocally interact with your show? Hecklers, uh, I, okay, so the, the the guy that I was saying that I was the production manager for, I when I started doing stand-up, then was his support act for, I don't know, we did this tour of New South Wales or something. It was only like eight shows, I think. And his audiences were rough and they were bikers, like biker rough. And there was other people, but there was a particularly rough audience. And so there was a lot of heckling. So I just had to deal with it. I just had to be good at it because I got heckled nearly every night. On top of the fact that when we were on tour, Heath, his name's Heath Franklin. He plays a character called Chopper sometimes. Um, And Chris, who is the producer and is also my manager, we were just brutal together. So we spent two years on and off touring together and we were just like we would just attack each other constantly. And so I had to become really good at fending off abuse, <laughs> friendly platonic abuse, but abuse nonetheless. So that was actually really good practice for me. So now when I get hecklers, I'm pretty, I feel pretty confident with most of them. The only times that I get rattled by hecklers is when they're too drunk to be shamed because I can shame most people and, uh, and that's never my first point of call. Um, and also I find women hecklers, I find them a lot harder to deal with because I don't know why. I don't know why because usually it's men and when it's female hecklers, the energy just changes and it becomes, sometimes it becomes 
personal and it's difficult. It's just a different energy to try and negotiate. And it's worse when I prefer when men don't like me to them when women don't like me. There was one show that I had in Edinburgh and I'd convinced these women to come and see the show. And, uh, you know, I was flyering and they said, we bought tickets. You better be funny. <laughs> and that's like a classic line that audience members think is hilarious to someone that is three weeks into an absolutely soul-destroying festival. It's not, just by the way, in case you're listening. So I was fragile as, and these women came into the show, and this is the essay reading show, right? And we're 15 minutes in, and they are not enjoying it. They're in the front row. They're sipping on their drinks. They're looking at each other, a little bit of rolling eyes. Like I could see that although maybe in their mid-50s, they look like they were about to get up and walk. And I thought, if, if they get up and walk, I will actually cry. I will cry on stage if they get up and leave because I just couldn't deal with it. And then I had this bit about cats in my show. And she sort of looked at me and I said, I asked what her name was. And I said, what do you think of cats? And, uh, and because I'm a cutting edge comedian, I talk about cats. And, uh, and she said... I hate them. And I was like, all right, I'm in here. I've got something that she's passionate about. And then we started talking and it turns out she like nearly tried to poison her next door's cat because it kept like doing poos all over her backyard. But it was such a relief that I'd engaged her because things that I I hate apathy more than I hate heckling because at least heckling, they have a response. They're engaged. At least you've evoked hate, you know. (laughs) The advice that I would give though, if someone heckles and they're abusive, uh, you say, what's that, mate? And they will say it again and then you say it back to them and in that time hopefully you will think of something. Often if it's if they've slurred at all uh, or if they've said it in a really gross way, you can say, I would, I would love to respond to this but I didn't actually understand what you said. Um, but I usually, my first point of call is I always come at people with love. I really love people like audiences and I feel like they've paid money to see you so they probably wanted to have a good time even if they're not um, in the first place. So that's – and when people call out because they want to get involved, I can usually tell whether they're doing it because they're an attention seeker or whether they feel compelled to yell stuff out. And if they're yelling it because they just can't help it, then of course I want them to yell out. I did a preview two nights ago and this woman was in the front row and she'd come in maybe five minutes late. So I made her sit in the front row because the rest of the row was empty or there was like five seats in the middle. And um, I can't remember what, it was a joke and she just said, I don't get it. And I said, what? And she goes, I don't understand the joke. And so I explained it to her in the most like unpatronising way, like the, I, I couldn't be any clearer. And she goes, oh, okay. And I went, oh, so you understood? She goes, oh, yeah, that, I got that. And I went, oh, so you understood it, you just didn't think it was funny. And she went, yeah, I suppose. And then she kept like yelling stuff out because we'd had sort of had this mini relationship then she felt comfortable enough and she was really innocent and naive and she was so beautiful and of course I want those people in my show I want people to feel so comfortable that they go I don't get that joke can you explain it to me because if you're nice about it then it's comedy for everyone else they get to enjoy it and they can have their own experience and you know think what they want about that woman but as long as I'm on her side then it's a, a, a new part of the show so I don't mind that stuff and do you have any tips or advice for aspiring comedians I don't know. I always get funny with this question, mostly because, one, who am I to give any advice on anything? Do as many gigs as you can because you can't get worse from being on stage longer. That's, if for nothing else, than just getting used to the feeling of what it feels like to have lights in your eyes and have people stare at you and learn how to use a microphone properly. 
Learn how to use a microphone properly. Learn how to stand on stage so you look like it's your body and you haven't borrowed it from someone else. Write as much as you can, especially in the first two years because you think it's going to be like that forever because the first two years I wrote books of books of jokes, so many jokes, so prolific, like the not, not prolific as in the quality wasn't incredible but the amount of ideas that were coming out of my brain. I was like, this is great. It's never going to end. And then about two years and it went, oh, that isn't a, that's not that good an idea. Oh, oh this, this isn't that funny. And the writing became a little bit harder after the first two years. And again, I don't know if that's because my standards improved or the quantity dropped. So I would say write as much as you can, gig as much as you can. Bite-sized chunks. That is what my sister said to me. She's very smart. And she said, if someone says something good about you, take a little bite-sized chunk of that. And if someone says something bad about you, take a bite-sized chunk out of that rather than trying to swallow the whole thing of anything and then that will keep your ego in check. 